0: Section 4 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Taylor D. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Businessmen by Albert Hubbard, chapter 2, part 2, James Oliver. Mr. Oliver loved trees, and liked to plant them himself, and encouraged boys to plant them. For music he cared little, yet during the 70s and the 80s he had a way of buying Mason and Hamlin organs and sending them as Christmas presents to some of his farmer friends where there were growing girls. A sewing machine, a Mason and Hamlin organ, and an Oliver plow form a trinity of necessities for a farmer, he once said. When Orange Judd first began to issue his Rural American, the enterprise received the hearty interest and support of Mr. Oliver, and he subscribed for hundreds of copies. He thought that farmers should be the most intelligent, the most healthy, and the happiest people on earth. Nothing was too good for a farmer. Your businessmen are only middlemen. The farmer digs his wealth out of the ground, he used to say. He quoted Brigham Young's advice to the Mormons. Raise food products and feed the miners, and you will all get rich. But if you mind for gold and silver, a very few will get rich, and the most of you will die poor. So there is the point. James Oliver was more interested in industrialism than in finance. His interest in humanity arose out of his desire to benefit humanity, and not for a wish to exploit it. If that is not a great lesson for the young, as well as for the old, then write me down as a soused gurnet. The gentle art of foreflushing was absolutely beyond his ken. He was like those South Sea Islanders told of by Robert Louis Stevenson, who didn't know enough to lie until after the missionaries came, when they partially overcame the disability. James Oliver didn't know enough to lie. He knew only one way to do business, and that was the simple, frank, honest, and direct way. The shibboleth of that great New York politician, find your sucker, play your sucker, land your sucker, and then beat it, would have been, to him, hopeless Choctaw. His ambition was to make a better plow than any other living man could make, and then sell it at a price the farmer could afford to pay. His own personal profit was a secondary matter. In fact, at board meetings, when ways and means were under discussion, he would break in and display a mold board, a coulter, or a new clevis with a letter from farmer John Johnson of Jones's Crossroads as to its efficiency. Then, when the board did not wax enthusiastic over his new toy, he would slide out and forget to come back his heart was set on making a better tool at less expense to the consumer than the world had ever seen thus would he lessen labor and increase production so besides great talent he had a unique simplicity which often supplied smiles for his friends james oliver had a sort of warm feeling for every man who had ever held the handles of an oliver plough he regarded such a one as belonging to the great family of olivers he believed that success depended upon supplying a commodity that made the buyer a friend heaven to him was a vast county fair largely attended by farmers where exhibitions of plowing were important items on the program streets paved with gold were no lure for him in various ways he resembled william morris who when asked what was his greatest ambition answered i hope to make a perfect blue and the dye on his hands attested his endeavors in this line both were working men and delighted in the society of toilers They lived like poor men and wore the garb of mechanics. Neither had any use for the cards, curds, and custards of what is called polite society. They hated hypocrisy, sham, pretense, and scorned the soft, the warm, the pleasant, the luxurious. They liked stormy weather, the sweep of the wind, the splash of the rain, and the creak of cordage. They gloried in difficulties, reveled in the opposition of things, and smiled at the tug of inertia in their natures was a granitic outcrop that defied failure it was the anglo-saxon with a goodly cross of the norse that gave them this disdain of danger and made levitation in their natures the supreme thing not gravitation the stubbornness of the scot is an inheritance from his norse forebears who discovered america five hundred years before columbus turned the trick these men were well called the wolves of the sea about the year one thousand a troop of them sailed up the seine in their rude but staunch ships The people on the shore, seeing those strange giants, their yellow hair flying in the wind, called to them, Where are you from, and who are your masters? And the defiant answer rang back over the waters, We are from the round world, and we call no man master. James Oliver called no man master. Yet with him, the violent had given way to the psychic and mental. His battleground was the world of ideas. The love of freedom he imbibed with his mother's milk. It was the thing that prompted their leaving Scotland james oliver had the defect of his qualities he was essentially cromwellian he too would have said take away that bauble he did not look outside of himself for help emerson's essay on self-reliance made small impression upon him because he had the thing of which emerson wrote his strength came from within not from without and it was this dominant note of self-reliance which made him seem indifferent to the strong men of his own town and vicinity it was not a contempt for strong men It was only the natural indifference of one who called no man master. He was a big body himself, big in brain, big in initiative, big in self-sufficiency. He could do without men, and there lies the paradox. If you would have friends, you must be able to do without them. James Oliver had a host of personal friends, and he also had a goodly list of enemies, for a man of his temperament does not trim ship. He was a good hater. He hugged his enemies to his heart with hoops of steel, and at times they inspired him as soft and mawkish concession never could. And well could he say, a little more grape, Captain Bragg. Also, we love him for the enemies he made. He had a beautiful disdain for society, society in its smart-set sense. He used to say, in order to get into heaven, you have to be good, and you have to be dead, but in order to get into society, you do not have to be either. Exclusion and caste were abhorrent to him. Oliver gave all, and doing so, he won all in the way of fame and fortune that the world has to offer. He was a full, free, happy, and useful life. Across the sky in letters of light, I would write these words of James Oliver. To benefit yourself, you must benefit humanity. Zangwill has written it down in a fadeless ink that Scotland has produced three bad things. Scotch humor, Scotch religion, and Scotch whiskey james oliver had use for only one of the commodities just named and that was humour through his cosmos ran a silver thread of quiet chuckle that added light to his life and endeared him to thousands laughter is the solvent for most of our ills all of his own personal religion and he had a deal of it was never saved up for sunday he used it in his business but james oliver was a scotchman and this being so the fires of his theological nature were merely banked when death was at the door an hour before his passing this hardy son of heath and heather of bog and fen and bleak north wind roused himself from stupor and in his deep impressive voice soon to be stilled forever startled the attendants with the stern order let us pray then he repeated slowly the lord's prayer and with the word amen sank back upon his pillow to arise no more for the occasional drunken workman he had terms of pity and sentences of scorn and alternation At such times, the scotch burr would come to his lips, and the blood of his ancestors would tangle his tongue. One of his clerks once said to me, As long as Mr. James talks United States, I am not alarmed, but when he begins to roll it out with a burr on his tongue, as if his mouth were full of hot mush, I am scared to death. In 1893, James Oliver spent several months at the Chicago Exposition. He was one of the World's Fairs commissioners. Hundreds of people shook hands with him daily. He was a commanding figure with personality plus. No one ever asked him, any more than they did old Dr. Johnson, Sir, are you anybody in particular? He was somebody in particular, all over and all of the time. That story about how the stevedores on the dock in Liverpool turned and looked at Daniel Webster and said, There goes the King of America, has been related of James Oliver. He was a commanding figure, with the face in front of a man in whom there was no parley. He was a good man to agree with. In any emergency, even up to his 80th year, he would have at once taken charge of affairs by divine right. His voice was the voice of command. So there at Chicago, he was always the center of an admiring group. He was Exhibit A of the Oliver Plow Works exhibition, and yet he never realized it. One day, when he was in a particularly happy mood, and the scotch burr was delightfully apparent as it was when he was either very angry or very happy, an elderly woman pushed her way through the throng, and seizing the hand that ruled the Oliver Plowworks in both of her own, said in ecstatic tones, Oh, it is such a joy to see you again! Twenty years ago I used to hear you preach every Sunday! For once, James Oliver was undone. He hesitated, stammered, and then exclaimed in flat contradiction, Madam, you never heard me preach! Why, aren't you Robert Collier, the Reverend Robert Collier? Not I, madam. My name is Oliver, and I make plows, was the proud reply. That night, Oliver asked his trusted helper, Captain Nickar, this question. I say, Nickar, who is this man Collier? That woman was the third person within a week who mistook me for that preacher. I don't look like a domine, do I, Captain? And then Captain Nickar explained what Mr. Oliver had known, but which had temporarily slipped his mind that Robert Collier was a very great preacher, a Unitarian who had graduated out of orthodoxy and who, in his youth, had been a blacksmith. Why didn't he stay a blacksmith, if he was a good one, and let it go at that? But the Snickar couldn't answer. However, the very next day, Robert Collier came along, piloted by Marshall Field, and Oliver had an opportunity to put the question to the man himself. Robert Collier was much impressed by Mr. Oliver and Mr. Oliver declared that Mr. Collier was not to blame for his looks, and so they shook hands. Collier was at Chicago to attend the Parliament of Religions. This department of the Great Exposition had not before especially appealed to Oliver. Machinery was his bent. But now he forgot plows long enough to go and hear Robert Collier speak on why I am a Unitarian. After the address, Mr. Oliver said to Mr. Collier, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Unitarian. "'How'd you take into the pulpit? "'You would have made a great preach for Mr. Oliver,' said Mr. Collier. "'And if you had stuck to your bellows and forge, "'you might have been a great ploughmaker, replied Mr. Oliver. "'And it's lucky for me you didn't.' "'Which is no pleasantry,' replied Mr. Collier. "'For if I had made plows, I should, like you, have made only the best.' "'The Oliver exhibit at the Great Fair was a kind of meeting place "'for a group of such choice spirits as Philip D. Armour, "'Sam Allerton, Clark E. Carr, and Joseph Medill.' and then david swing robert collier dr frank Gonzalez, and Jean field were all added to the coterie Jean field's column of sharps and flats used to get the benefit of the persiflage collier and oliver were born the same year eighteen hundred twenty three both had the same magnificent health the same high hopes and courage that never falters and either would have succeeded in anything into which he might have turned his energies chance made oliver a mechanic and an inventor He evolved the industrial side of his nature. Chance also lifted Collier out of a blacksmith shop and tossed him into the pulpit. Collier was born in Yorkshire, but his ancestors were Scotch. Oliver's mother's name was Irving, and the Irvings appear in the Collier pedigree, tracing to Edward Irving, that strong and earnest preacher who played such a part in influencing Tamas the Titan of Ecclfechan. Whether Oliver and Collier ever followed up their spiritual relationship to see whether it was a blood tie, I do not know. Probably not, since both, like all superbly strong men, have a beautiful indifference to climbing genealogical trees. I once heard Robert Collier speak in a sermon of James Oliver as a transplanted thistle evolved into a beautiful flower, and the man of many manly virtues. Seemingly, Mr. Collier was unconscious of the fact that, in describing Mr. Oliver, he was picturing himself. Industry, economy, the love of fresh air, the enjoyment of the early morning, The hatred of laziness, shiftlessness, sharp practice, and all that savors of graft, grab, and get by any means. These characteristics were strong in both. And surely, Robert Collier was right. If the world ever produces a race of noble men, that race will be founded on the simple virtues upon which there is neither caveat nor copyright, the virtues possessed by James Oliver in such a rare degree. George H. Daniels of the New York Central Railroad and James Oliver were close personal friends. Both were graduates of the University of Hard Knocks. Both loved their alma mater. When Daniels printed that literary trifle, A Message to Garcia, he sent 5,000 copies to Oliver, who gave one to every man in his factory. Daniels was one of the Illini, and had held the handles of an Oliver plow. He had seen the great business of the Olivers at South Bend Evolve. Oliver admired Daniels, as he did any man who could do big things in a big way. Daniels had an exhibition of locomotives and passenger cars at the Chicago Exposition, and personally spent much time there. Among the very interesting items in the New York Capitol Central exhibit was the locomotive that once ran from Albany to Schenectady, when that streak of scrap iron rust, 16 miles long, constituted the whole of the New York Central Railroad. And this locomotive, the DeWitt Clinton, had been the entire motor equipment, save two good mules used for switching purposes. It was during the exposition that Oliver incidentally told Daniels about how he had been mistaken for the Reverend Robert Collier. I can sympathize with you, said Daniels, for the plague of my life is a preacher who looks like me. Only last week I was stopped in the street by a man who wanted me to go to his house and perform a marriage ceremony. And you punched the ticket? asked Oliver. No, I accepted and sent for the sky pilot to do the job, and the happy couple never knew of the break. The man who so closely resembled Daniels was the Reverend Dr. Thomas R. Slicer of Buffalo, an eminent clergyman now in New York City. Besides other points of resemblance, the one thing that marked them as twins was a beautiful red chin whisker, about the color of an Irish setter. Once, Daniels challenged the Reverend Gentleman to toss up to see who should sacrifice the lilacs. Dr. Slicer got tails, but lost his nerve before he reached the barber's, and so still clings to his beauty mark. Dr. Slicer was once going through the Grand Central Station when he was approached by a man who struck him for a pass to Niagara Falls. "'I regret,' said the preacher, "'that I cannot issue you a pass to Niagara Falls. All I can do is give you a pass to Paradise.' "'Which,' said Mr. Oliver, when Mr. Daniels told him the story, "'which was only a preacher's way of telling the man to go to Hades. You and I, George, express ourselves much more simply.' It will not do to make James Oliver out a religious man in a sectarian sense. He did, however, have a great abiding faith in the supreme intelligence in which we are all bathed and of which we are a part. He saw the wisdom and goodness of the Creator on every hand. He loved nature, the birds and the hedgerows and the flowers in the field. He gloried in the sunrise and probably saw the sunrise more times than any other man in Indiana. The morning is full of perfume, he used to say and so it is, but most of us need to be so informed. He believed most of all in his own mission and in his own divinity. Therefore, he prized good health and looked upon sickness and sick people with a touch of scorn. He reverenced the laws of health as God's laws, and so he would not put an enemy in his mouth to steal away his brains. He used no tobacco, was wedded to the daily cold bath, and was a regular amphibian for splashing he had a system of calisthenics which he followed as religiously as the mohammedan prays to the east the pasteboard proclivity was not one of his accomplishments but a few months before his death he was missed one day at the works his son thought he would drive out to his farm and see if he was there he was there all right and had just one hundred twenty-seven men by actual count digging a ditch and laying out a road james oliver wasn't a man given to explanations apologies or excuses his working motto usually was that of the reverend dr jowlett of baliol never explain never apologize get the thing done and let them howl but on this occasion anticipating a gentle reproach from his son for his extravagance he said all right joe all right you see i've been postponing this tarnation job for twenty years and i thought i'd just take hold and clean it up because i knew you never would he was let off with a warning but joseph had to go behind the barn and laugh one thing that was as much gratification to Mr. Oliver's making the road was the sense of motion, action, bustle, and doing things. He delighted in looking after a rush job, and often took charge of the boys, personally. For the men who made the plows, his regard was as great as for those who used them. He moved among the men as one of them, and while his discipline never relaxed, he was always approachable and ready to advise even with the most lowly. His sense of justice and his consideration are shown in the fact that in all the long years that the Oliver Plow Works existed, it has never once been defended in a lawsuit in its home country, damage or otherwise. Thousands of men have been employed, and accidents have occasionally happened, but the unfortunate man and his family have always been cared for. Indeed, the Olivers carry a pension roll for the benefits of widows, orphans, and old people, the extent of which is known only to the confidential cashier. They do not proclaim their charities with a brass band, James Oliver thought that a man should live so as to be useful all of his days. Getting old was, to him, a bad habit. He did not believe in retiring from business, either to have a good time or because you were old and bug house. Use your faculties and you will keep them, he used to repeat again and again. He agreed with Herbert Spencer that men have softening of the brain because they have failed to use that organ. And certainly he proved his theories, for he himself was sane and sensible to the day of his death. Yet, when certain of his helpers, bowed beneath the weight of years and life's vicissitudes, would become weak and needful of care, he would say, Well, old John has done us good work, and we must look after him. And he did. He would have denied that he was either charitable or philanthropic, but the fact was that the golden rule was a part of his business policy, and beneath his brusque outside there beat a very warm and generous heart. When the financial panic of 1893 struck the country, and dealers were canceling their orders and everybody was shortening sale, the Olivers kept right along manufacturing and stored their product. Never have they laid off labor on account of hard times. Never have they even shortened hours or pay. This is a record, I believe, equaled by no big manufacturing concern in America. In October 1907, when workmen were being laid off on every hand, the Olivers simply started in and increased their area for the storage of surplus product, they had faith that the tide would turn and this faith was founded on the experience of forty years and more in business said james oliver man's first business was to till the soil his last business will be to till the soil i help the farmer to do his work and for my product there will always be a demand james oliver had no fear of death he had an abiding faith that the power that cared for him here would never desert him there he looked upon death as being as natural as life and probably just as good For the quibbles of theology, he had small patience. Live right here. Wait, and we shall know, he used to say. When his wife died in 1902, he bore the blow like a Spartan. Fifty-eight years had they journeyed together. She was a woman of great good sense and a very handsome woman, even in her old age. Her husband had always depended on her, telling her his plans and thus clarifying them in his own mind. They were companions, friends, chums, lovers, man and wife. After her death, he redoubled his activities and fought valiantly to keep from depressing the household with the grief that was gnawing at his heart. A year passed, and one day he said to his son, Joe, I do miss your mother awfully, but then I'll not have to endure this loneliness forever. And this was as near a sign of weakness as he ever showed. James Oliver was a successful man, but it was not always smooth sailing. In the early days, the plow plant caught fire at night and was absolutely consumed. Returning home at three o'clock in the morning, exhausted and with clothing wet and frozen in a sheet of ice, this man, sorely kicked by an unkind fate, turned a chair over on the floor before the fireplace and, reclining on it there with eyes closed, endeavored to forget the trying scenes of the night. Mrs. Oliver had made coffee and prepared a simple breakfast for the tired man, but rest was never for her or her family when there was pressing work to attention. "'James, why are you wasting time?' Drink this coffee, put on these dry clothes, and go at once before daylight and order lumber and bricks so the men can begin at seven o'clock to rebuild. We have orders to fill! And the man, arousing himself, obeyed the command. At seven o'clock, the lumber was on the ground, and the men were working at preparing to rebuild. James Oliver was a man of courage, but his patience, persistency, and unfaltering faith were largely the reflection of his wife's soul and brain when seventy years of age a neighbor once dropped in for a little visit and in conversation referred to mr oliver's being a rich man yes said this kindly old spartan yes they can say i am rich but if i didn't have a dollar i would still be rich with a wife like that he pointed to his partner of nearly half a century mrs oliver smiled and said chidingly now james but he continued i say mother if we did not have a dollar we could still earn our living with our hands at just plain hard work couldn't we and the old lady who was really never old replied yes james we could still earn our living with our hands and we would not be miserable over it either near the close of his wonderful career pericles said i have caused no one to wear crape the honourable marvin campbell in a speech at south bend once quoted this remark of the man who built the city of athens and added Not only can we pay James Oliver the compliment of saying that he never caused anyone to wear crepe, but no one ever lost money by investing in either his goods or his enterprises, and moreover, no one ever associated with him who did not prosper and grow wiser and better through the association. A few weeks before his passing, someone told him this little story of Tolstoy's. A priest, seeing a peasant plowing, approached him and said, If you knew you were to die tonight, how would you spend the rest of the day? and the peasant promptly answered i would plow it seems the priest thought the man would answer in confession or in prayer or at church the priest heard the answer in surprise he thought a moment and then replied my friend you have given the wisest answer a man can possibly make for to plow is to pray since the prayer of honest labor is always answered the story impressed mr oliver He told it to several people and then made a personal application of it. Thus, if I knew I were to die tonight, I would make plows today. End of Section 4. Recording by Taylor D.